Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Richard Atkinson talks about his family history in his new book, Mr. Atkinson's Rum Contract. Richard Atkinson is a publisher who has been behind some of the most successful cookbooks of recent years. He lives in London, but has a deep-rooted affection for the north of England, the land of his ancestors. And Richard's debut book, Mr. Atkinson's Rum Contract, The Story of a Tangled Inheritance, is what we're going to be talking about. Today, Richard, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Um, first of all, tell us what the idea behind Mr. Atkinson's Rum Contract is. Well, I guess in a nutshell, and I be, I've spent quite a long time practising my elevator pitch on this, um, but in a nutshell, it's basically the story of how I went looking for my ancestors and and found my 18th century slave-owning family. And I want to talk about how you... So you were you were basically, as you said, investigating your family tree. At what point did you discover that there's actually a story here that's that's worth telling? And and one of the one of the key things around this I wanted to talk about was this is the story, Mr. Atkinson, the, you know, the titular character who at least the first part of the book is about, and the rest of the book his sort of shadow hangs over is is a man, and there's a lot of men doing manly things in this yeah. book. But one of the key figures in the story kicking off is is a woman, Bridget, his sister-in-law, in a cookbook that you discovered, which obviously is something you would have a personal interest yeah. in. I think, in a way, this story had been sort of waiting to to find me for kind of quite a few years, really, because I always suspected there was something strange about my family. I grew up knowing very, very little about them because my dad had died when I was four, and he was an only child, so there were no kind of uncles or aunts or cousins or anyone to kind of fill me in about what the ancestors had been up to. But I always felt that there was this sort of, I don't know, something. And I suppose there were a number of kind of Along the way, there were taps on the sh- on the shoulder, which perhaps I didn't recognise as being taps on the shoulder. But they got sort of louder and louder and more insistent, particularly as I got to my kind of late 30s, early 40s. And there was this one amazing weekend when I... So basically a house that my grandparents lived in, which had been in the family for 12 generations, and which I inherited when I was four and was sold when I was seven, thank God, in, in all sorts of ways. I- I'm so happy it's not mine. But 
it's now a hotel. And I read on the website of the hotel about this cookbook, which had been written by someone called Bridget Atkinson, who I happen to know was my great, 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 great grandmother. And the idea of this ancestor of mine having written a cookbook, because I publish cookbooks for a living, was too kind of tantalizing, really, to ignore. So I actually went and spent a night at the hotel and with a view to finding out about this cookbook and they showed it to me and it was an incredible thing I, I've never I've never wanted I've never felt more covetous of, a, of an object in my life it's a kind of an amazing manuscript that is 800 recipes and is 400 pages long it's all handwritten but it's written in very kind of legible handwriting it's extraordinary it's a kind of through you know it was a kind of amazing kind of portal into this kind of family life that I had no idea about because the family that I found, they were just non-existent as far as I was concerned. And then suddenly I was like, I could hear them kind of around the dining table and eating these incredible, this incredible food, which a lot of which was, you know, sort of with ingredients from Far East and from, from the West Indies. So let's just set the context of, of when this is. So we're, we're in the 18th century and this is the time of the Enlightenment and there are great figures like Dr. Mm-hmm. Johnson and David Hume that wander mm. through this book. But at the same time, the triangular trade in the Atlantic is in, is in full swing as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a time of, of kind of extraordinary strides of knowledge and at the same time, the economy of the... British Empire is based around this extraordinary commodity of labour that seems kind of unthinkable and kind of the absolute, you know, the opposite of enlightenment, as we would see it today, slavery. And so my story sort of starts in the 1750s, and basically goes through to the 1850s. I mean, I was incredibly lucky to find this this sort of story that was basically to find a sort of continuity of family material in all sorts of places that kind of provided a whole century of kind of continuous storyline. And it just so happens that it kind of covers, you know, it goes from the time when slavery was at its height and, you know, the, Brit- and the colonies in the West Indies, of which Jamaica was the biggest and the most valuable, were, were just the absolute sort of drivers of the British economy. Um, and obviously the American mainland as well. But the West Indies were far more valuable than the American colonies ever were. So the the linchpin of this story then is the Mr. Atkinson of the title, um, your namesake, Richard Atkinson. Yeah. So who was he? He was the youngest son of my family six generations ago. Um, so he was born in, in 1739. Um, I'm descended from his eldest brother. But Richard Atkinson was the youngest by quite a way. He's the baby of the family, but was obviously by far the brightest. So his, his father was a tanner. He was a very successful trader in the north of England, in, in Westmoreland, and he had managed to diversify into banking. Um, but basically, the family were tanners, and they had been for five generations, and they were tanning was the business by which leather was made. And it was a grubby, grubby trade, really, you know, stinking trade, but obviously an incredibly necessary one. And Richard Atkinson was, you know, far exceeded the rest of the family in terms of his kind of promise. And he managed to somehow, and I haven't quite worked out how, because it's a bit of a mystery, but he managed to kind of get his foot in the door at a West India merchant in London, a very successful merchant who was, um, you know, who was, who was kind of renowned for being a bit of a sharp dealer. One of Richard Atkinson's co-workers, a young man who was an apprentice at the same time as Richard Atkinson, was uh, Francis Baring, who went on to start Baring's Bank. And 
anyway, Richard Atkinson basically um, became, you know, learned incredibly fast. And by the time he was in his sort of mid 20s, he was the um, junior partner of another very successful West India merchant. So West India merchants were basically dealing with all aspects of trade in, in the West Indian colonies. Richard Atkinson's partner was had a lot of interests in Jamaica. They owned a lot of shipping. They invested in the triangular trade. So Richard Atkinson's partner had certainly had at least 18 ships. And I know that he was involved in, I think, eight triangular voyages, whereby basically the ships would be loaded up with all sorts of items which were considered tradable in West Africa. So everything from, from cloth to gunpowder to alcohol to you know, you name it, really. And then basically they they go to the story is well known, but then they go they go to West Africa and they'd barter for um, people who'd been captured in the African interior and had been brought to the coast to the European forts, trading forts. And then they'd be taken. These poor enslaved people would be would be taken across the Atlantic on journeys which would take typically about two months, but sometimes longer, on which the mortality rate was typically about ten percent. Again, sometimes much, much, much higher. These people would be taken and would, would be sold in, in the slave port. I mean, in, in, in Jamaica's case, Kingston, mostly, and would serve out the rest of their days, sometimes very short days, in the um, fields, in the cane fields of Jamaica or, or, or the other colonies. And then the sugar would come back on the third side of the triangle. That was the nature of the business that Richard Atkinson found himself working in. So Richard, basically, he becomes very successful in trade in numerous ways. But the, mm-hmm. the sort of the one thing, that, again, that the book is named after that really makes his fortune and indeed, in a lot of ways, damages his reputation mm. is this rum contract. So tell us yeah. about what that he, was. So basically, he was a bit of a logistical genius. He was he was brilliant at kind of getting things done. I mean, he was super articulate in all sorts of ways but also he was just he just had a fantastically kind of clear sighted head when it came to organization he had a contact through his westmoreland connections at the treasury so richard atkinson knew, had known pretty much all his life this man called john robinson who was the secretary to the treasury under lord north lord north was the prime minister at the time and it was the treasury's job to uh, supply the army with everything that it needed, all its supplies kind of while it was fighting. It was a bit of an an anomaly, really, because actually other departments dealt with the naval contracts, etc., etc. But the the Treasury, for some reason, had this responsibility. And it was a very onerous responsibility that the Treasury, when the American War of Independence started, realised that it couldn't kind of fulfil on its own. It needed someone to come in and, and run the show. And Richard Atkinson was the man who became the sort of treasury's go-to, well, contractor in the sense that he was supplying everything. He was supplying an enormous amount of provisions and, you know, and uniforms and, you know, furniture and oats for the horses and et cetera, et cetera. But he was also um, responsible for the um, shipping. So he was responsible for hiring all the ships that were required to take all this stuff across the Atlantic. Um, At one point, he had about 150 ships, I think, that he was managing. But there was one item in particular that he became well known for and notorious for, in fact, which was rum. So basically, the army, it was considered a necessary part of the um, army ration to have rum. 
regular rations of rum. And Richard Atkinson was one of the contractors that was um, enlisted with with supplying it. He did three deals for rum in in the end, but there was one that was particularly contentious, um, which was a kind of top-up deal that his agent in New York agreed with the commander-in-chief in in New York at the time, Sir William Howe, for 350,000 gallons of Jamaican rum, um, a lot of which came from Richard Atkinson's partner's estates. 350,000 gallons of rum was an enormous quantity, but the real... The real problem was that the um, commander-in-chief and the agent in New York didn't agree the price and and referred it back to a treasury who, in turn, didn't want to fix it themselves. No one could agree how much how much the price for the rum should be, and it became a kind of it became a kind of political football, really, and a kind of cause of great scandal. There were four years of, of parliamentary inquiries, and there were 25, 26, I think I counted at one point, Treasury Board meetings specifically about the rum contracts. And Richard Atkinson became a kind of lightning rod for the excess expenditure of the British government during the American War of Independence. So he became a kind of, you know, he became a kind of joke whipping boy, really, for the opposition. And, you know, it wasn't entirely, it wasn't entirely unjust. I mean, about a third of the Treasury Board's expenditure on the American War of Independence went through Richard Atkinson's books or or those of his partners. He, He was right in the thick of things. You mention in the book that, you know, obviously there are thousands of books written about war, thousands of books probably written about the American War of Independence, but not many people write books about the logistics of trying to keep those soldiers fed and watered during the war. And, you know, you've you've done it and you've made an absolutely, you know, cracking narrative out of it here. But, I mean, I want to talk about how you... Did you think that that was something that you could achieve when you well, set that upon it? I'm not sure. There were times during the entire endeavor when i wasn't sure whether i could achieve it to be honest i mean just just in every every single facet of it the kind of thicket of detail that i i felt that i had to kind of hack my way through was was sometimes it sometimes felt very impenetrable i don't know i think i mean of course logistics are rather you know are rather dry but i suppose you don't you, one doesn't think about it one one doesn't think about it but actually the kind of sheer jeopardy of a situation you know like the one that richard atkinson faced was just extraordinary because there were so many i mean just thinking in the moment of the jeopardy of the logistics of trying to deal with the current crisis that we are in the middle of and trying to get supplies. I was thinking about this the other day because I, on the news there was a feature about how a, a sportswear company, I think in Northern Ireland, had kind of entirely repurposed its uh, workforce for the creation of, of scrubs, of nurses' scrubs. And of course, I thought, well, there was a time when Richard Atkinson was scrabbling around the entire country trying to find a way of basically um, getting uniforms, um, you know, woolen trousers and, 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 and other uniforms for the army in Canada that was about to, you know, was about to undergo an incredibly gruellingly cold winter. And he had to and he was having to scrabble around the country to get hold of these uniforms um, to keep them warm for this winter before the um, St. Lawrence River froze over, which meant that basically none of the ships would be able to supply, the, you know, these items. You know, the, the, just a sheer feeling, just a sheer responsibility of basically all that resting on your on your shoulders. I just found it flabbergasting how pressurising it must have, have felt to be him. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Adams, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Richard Atkinson and we're talking about his book Mr Atkinson's Rum Contract, The Story of a Tangled Inheritance. And Richard, large aspects of Richard Atkinson's life I'm going to skip over because Mm. I want people to buy the book and read this, not least his (laughs) long (laughs) and tangled unrequited love affair with um, Lady Anne Lindsay, which um, (laughs) is a a very sad story. But um, Richard dies and Mm. um, leaves to basically sets up, he has a very interesting will which sort of sets up a lot of his friends and his his next generation, basically not his children, but his his nephew. So his nephews George, Dick, and and Matt all in in sort of various ways go over to Jamaica. Now, as far as we know, Richard Atkinson himself never visited Jamaica. No, um, I, I was very very um, keen to find out if Richard Atkinson went to Jamaica because there was a kind of revelation. I don't know if I should say what the revelation is because in a, in a sense, it, it, I, I don't want to give a spoiler. No. But, I think I think you shouldn't say what that revelation okay. is. But the revelation in the right in the middle of the book, which basically made me really, really, really wonder whether he had ever been to Jamaica. So I spent quite a bit of time going through all the correspondence I had of, of his, of which there's masses, I mean, in all sorts of different places, and trying to work out whether there was a kind of window that was long enough for him to ever to have gone to Jamaica. Because, you, you know, after all, if you think about it, it was about three months out, it was three months back. And then, of course, you had to be out there for, a, you know, for a decent period of time to make it worth even going out there. So basically, you're looking for a year, at least. And there was no way in which he went to Jamaica, because just the kind of paper trail in this country is too dense. But yes, he wrote this incredibly sort of intricate will, which he'd recently acquired to um, Jamaican sugar estates um, from his partner, in fact, he'd bought them. And I think he probably realized that he was going to die young by this stage. And he was thinking very, very carefully about how he should 
kind of enrich all those who are sort of in his kind of family and circle of close friends. He was by this stage a very, very wealthy man. He was in his early 40s and he, you know, and he was one of the most, if not the most high profile and successful merchants of his day. And he was a very rich man. And I think he, what he hoped to do was to enrich his closest friends, um, in particular, the woman who you um, spoke about earlier, um, Lady Anne Lindsay, um, who had by this stage rejected him in love. But They'd sort of formed a kind of different kind of bond, really. But he also hoped to kind of give a leg up to the rest of of his wider family. And he had 17 nephews and nieces. So he set up this kind of, in his will, was that the way his will was going to work was basically that his two Jamaican sugar estates, the idea was that they would generate enough income through their produce, through their slave produce, produce, you know, lest we forget. They were going to generate enough income by which basically all the all all the kind of close friends were going to be sort of set up with kind of quite large annuities and the nephews and nieces were going to have smaller annuities and then gradually as everyone kind of died off the properties would be handed over to the next generation so basically the the idea was that the properties would generate i think about 5000 pounds a year which you know was certainly add two noughts on and you know and and probably multiplied by two or three the idea was that those 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 estates would generate an awful lot of uh, awful lot of income every year but they didn't they didn't it was a completely it was a completely flawed will in that the money that he'd hoped to shower upon his nearest and dearest just didn't exist really and it wasn't helped by the fact that his partners were incapable of maintaining the business after he died because he was by far the he was the leading light so basically his his kind of entire sort of dreams of of kind of of setting up the next generation and enriching his friends kind of founded i mean it didn't entirely founder because um some members of the next generation went on to make enormous fortunes of their own but it was it was shown to be incredibly flawed and there were 40 years of lawsuits and the lawyers got extremely extremely rich off the proceeds now, I mean, it's tempting to talk about Richard, who perhaps never visited Jamaica, as being at arm's length from the trade that was making his his family's money. Although, indeed, obviously there was, you know, an abolitionist movement going on at the time. Yeah. And indeed, one of Richard's company's ships was intimately involved in an incident that um, that basically set one of the one of the abolitionists, Granville Sharp, on his mm. on his original path. However, the next generation, um, the the nephews mm. um, who travel to Jamaica to take possession of the two sugar plantations on behalf of the family. So let's talk about what what conditions they would have found on these two plantations when they get there. They would have. I mean, they would have in this incredibly Arcadian setting. They would have basically been taking possession of these brutal, slave-driven, just these places, these factories of misery, really. These places where the um, workforce had been. It's hard. It's hard to describe what 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 the atmosphere must have been like. And of course, yeah, it's it's it's, it's really it's really really hard to know or describe how miserable it must have been. Well, you, I mean, you're sorry, to describe quite, it now, but you certainly don't stem mm, from it in the book. No, there, are, there are descriptions of extreme no, cruelty and and brutality no, going on on these plantations. Absolutely, there was. I mean, there was there was a kind of there was an absolute determined kind of um, you know, fear and brutality were just kind of pervaded 
the West Indian islands because it was you know, the only way that this tiny minority of, of white men could basically uh, keep control of their enslaved workforces was by being utterly, utterly callous in ways that, that again, kind of boggle the mind, really. So, you know, violence was, was kind of, you know, violence was an everyday occurrence. The, any kind, any kind of sort of, any kind of sort of um, softness, any kind of um, gentleness was something that, that a kind of, that a planter was expected to kind of get rid of pretty quickly because, um, because w- without it um, lay insurrection and, you know, and as it were, the kind of end of their, you know, the end of their, the end of everything as far as they're concerned. So as you begin to you know to research mm. this. as this starts to come out and you you know you start to research i mean obviously mm-hmm. you know your your family now is you know the wealth of you know richard atkinson and and his sort of you know generations after him obviously you know dissipated mm. over yeah. the years but you yeah. know but nonetheless you you talk in the book about you know you've got like you know pieces of porcelain or something at home um family heirlooms mm. that you know fundamentally would have been bought with the you know the proceeds of of the slave trade so as you started to mm. you know to piece this together how was it for you really um yeah very i'm very odd to think of it in those sort of terms actually i i mean most most of the bits the kind of heirlooms that i have are i mean actually kind of don't i don't have any heirlooms that directly relate to jamaica which is which is a kind of which in a way is something i'm quite pleased about but yeah it's 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 very odd it's very odd to think of them in those sort of terms you know something i'm very much aware of is that even though the kind of money went a long time ago i mean i was i was um i'm very much i'm definitely descended from the kind of um feckless branch of the family but you know even though there's no kind of great kind of material wealth that you can kind of um point to and 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 say that came from jamaica you know i'm very much aware that my family and many other families like mine benefited from you know benefited on a kind of cultural level from the prosperity that this branch of business brought to them so i'm i'm very much aware of that i mean having said which actually as an as a nation on a whole as a whole we you know we the whole country benefited from you know from its slave produced wealth because actually in the 18th century it was everywhere you know, one didn't necessarily see enslaved people on this side of the Atlantic very often, but the colonies were the kind of driver of the British economy. And I think when I when I started researching this book, and I, I started pretty much from scratch because I, you know, I'm not I'm not a trained historian, so I had to really, really, really kind of read a lot a lot around the subject pretty quickly. But when I started, I think I had this sort of vision of of kind of slave owners as you know as a kind of grubby subclass of the merchant line you know as as kind of a you know sort of slightly kind of beyond the pale sort of um people sort of on the kind of very much on the edges of of kind of commerce but i pretty soon discovered that they were absolutely at the heart of it they were right in the center of the establishment and you know one of the reasons why it took so long to abolish first the slave trade and then slavery as a whole was because the West India interest in Parliament was so strong. So many people were invested in the West Indies in a way that made it kind of unthinkable to them that they could kind of divest. 
And yeah. that was then, obviously, at mm-hmm. the time. And it took, you know, decades from, you know, the, the first stirrings of, of an abolitionist movement mm-hmm. for, like, the slave trade and then slavery itself to, to be removed. But now, I mean, you just mentioned that... And I, you know, this is often one of the sort of ideas that's raised that, you know, slavery was kept at arm's length in a lot of ways from the United Kingdom, whereas obviously in America, in the south of America, it was it was there, it was very apparent. And so subsequently, America, despite being, again, a country that's, you know, still, you know, riven long racial lines, but it's not something that's hidden. It's something that's talked about and debated and, you know, is a, is a hot political topic, whereas in... In Britain, we tend to think that that's all something that's in the past. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, and I think that it's, I think that we, you know, I suppose I think that we've been able to kind of, we feel that we've been, we've been able to kind of move on from it. I mean, partly because it is an episode, albeit an incredibly formative episode in our kind of long and kind of storied history. Whereas for the, you know, for the Caribbean countries that were, created on the back of slavery it's still a very 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 raw episode in their history um and you know and obviously that you know i'd also include america in that as well i guess but certainly if you go to jamaica the kind of detritus of colonialism and specifically you know slavery is pretty much everywhere you know the um the kind of the undergrowth of jamaica is absolutely sort of um filled with the sort of ruined decaying remains of old sugar works and other and great houses and it's a very 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 kind of live issue over there and it's actually incredibly recent if you think of it in terms of kind of generational terms i mean i kind of find it extraordinary to think that my great great grandfather who was called Richard Atkinson, was in Jamaica as a young man at the time of the abolition of slavery. It's my great-great-grandfather. That is kind of nothing in terms of, of, of sort of um, degrees of separation. And yeah, I, I think that there has perhaps been a tendency in this country to, well, A, to keep it at arm's length, and B, to be perhaps a little bit more glib about wondering why the ex-West Indian colonies don't get over it. I've been talking to Richard Atkinson. We've been talking about his book, Mr. Atkinson's Rum Contract, The Story of a Tangled Inheritance, which is out now from Forthy State. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.